I, I learned through the palliative care movement really the concept of patient-centered care and caring for a patient the way he or she would want me to care for them. And so it really does require a back and forth and a collaboration uh, between the people who are being acted upon and their healthcare providers, and we're not doing that in modern medicine. Welcome to Zestful Aging, where I interview thoughtful, inspiring, and influential guests who are making their mark on the world and contributing to the greater good. Making your mark, big or small, is creating a legacy, and it's one of the proven ways we can age with vibrance and deep contentment. And Zestful Aging Podcast is my legacy. I'm your host, Nicole Christina, psychotherapist and fellow Zestful Ager. Our lovely music is courtesy of Judy Banker, who was a previous guest on Zestful Aging. Find out more about her at judybanker.com. And to find out more about this podcast, my web courses, and other offerings, hop on over to ZestfulAging.com. I know that everyone is feeling really stressed and anxious right now. We're all unsettled and feel out of control. So I created a free download for you for maintaining mental health based on my 30 years as a psychotherapist. Um, Just go to zestfulaging.com and it is all yours. Well, I've got my little loyal Jack Russell Sparky right by my side, and you may actually hear him snoring. (laughs) Last year, I interviewed Dr. Jessica Zitter, who practices ICU and palliative care in Oakland, California. Her work is featured in the Oscar and Emmy-nominated short documentary, Extremists, now streaming on Netflix. And she's also the author of Extreme Measures, Finding a Better Path to the End of Life. Her essays and articles have appeared in the New York Times, The Atlantic, The Huffington Post, to name just a few. Well, I've been holding back on publishing this interview while she's been working on her brand new film, Caregiver, A Love Story. And I'm happy to announce that her brand new film is out and has two virtual cinema releases coming up. There's also an upcoming one-time virtual screening and discussion with Dr. Zitter on January 5th, 2021 at 12 p.m. Pacific time. You can get all of the details on caregiver, a love story, all one word, dot com. Now, without further ado, here's my interview with the inspiring Dr. Jessica Zitter. Welcome to the show, Jessica. Thank you so much for having me. Let me just start with, uh, I, I guess I'm quoting you here. You talked about coming into medicine and having this idea of being a medical hero, helping people in sort of this heroic way with interventions. And now you define that quite differently. Yes. Heroism somehow changed and sort of flipped on its head the concept and the definition of it for me. You know, I came into medicine really thinking that doing things to patients, doing things to people was what I had to offer and what a really good clinician could do, you know, being expert at intervening in some way. 
And, you know, I did that uh, pretty well. I got trained at some of the best places and felt that I had sort of gotten that down. And somehow there was just something that was missing. A lot of what I realize now in retrospect, having learned a new way and a new sort of concept and definition of heroism, is that what really impacts people and makes things better for them is doing what they want you to do to them instead of just being acted upon. And so I, I learned through the palliative care movement really the concept of patient-centered care and caring for a patient the way he or she would want me to care for them. And that seems like it would be a pretty uh, dramatic shift. And I know it's it's over the last several years uh, more on the landscape, but you know, medicine has a history of uh, being the expert. And I know what's best. I've studied a long time, and I'm going to tell you how this is going to go. Right, right. The sort of idea of the silent hero who doesn't really need to to ask any questions or talk much, but just knows what to do without, you know, that's that's sort of this, this fantasy that we all have about our doctors, right? That they're just going to take care of us. They're just going to do what needs to be done. And the fact is that when you really get into it, it's a lot more complicated. You know, the human body is a lot more complicated. People are a lot more complicated. And so it really does require a back and forth and a collaboration mm-hmm. uh, between the people who are being acted upon and their healthcare providers. And we're not doing that in modern medicine. It seems like what what you're bringing in here is a respect for the person's personhood right. uh, rather than here's your body here are the ways it's broken and I have the tools to fix it right exactly I mean ultimately someone said this to me um, once and I just will never forget it I don't know who this who who made this original quote but you know the the, the doctor is the patient in in med- in the medical uh, issues but the patient is the expert in herself. And uh, we just haven't acknowledged that. We've just really had this hierarchical uh, approach to thinking about healthcare that I think has just uh, become, it's really not, it's not effective and it, it's just really causing more, more suffering than, it, than, we, than, than benefit. I'm wondering if another piece of this is as a physician, it's not all on you so mm-hmm. that you're sharing, kind of sharing the work Absolutely. Absolutely. I think it's the ultimate argument for collaboration. You know, when you have uh, even the most sophisticated and highly trained physician, a surgeon, an ICU doctor, somebody who's really expert in in his or her field, um, and you sort of have this model where you think that they have all the answers to everything, and there's this sort of almost taboo sense that they shouldn't have to ask for any support from their colleagues, from the chaplain, from the patient, then, you know, and, and it almost becomes like this this concept that that it would it would make them look like a weaker doctor to ask for input, then you've just you've shifted everything on its head. And what's happening is you've got this one person who's really truly doesn't know this patient who's somehow feels that they need to make all the decisions and it, it ends up leading to a very dysfunctional situation where the decisions that are being made really aren't necessarily in the patient's best interest at all. That's really interesting. So you're saying that this this way of being a physician really helps not only the patient clearly, but also the physician, also the system. And I'm going to guess less burnout. 
Oh, you're good. <laughs> you're you're good. You know, um, I'll, I'll tell you, that's exactly right. And, you know, when you start to collaborate and you start to have a system where it is not only not frowned upon, but encouraged that, that you reach out for help and support and reflection and collaboration with your colleagues and your patients and families, then you, you know you you just have this more robust situation. I have this fantasy, and it's not a fantasy. I'm going to do it of making um, another of, of of a film that is about smashing the hierarchy in medicine. It's really it's going to be called Smashing the Hierarchy, mm. um, and it's it's about this idea that we have to smash this this the, we have to change the way we have structured our healthcare teams, where the doctor is at the top and everybody else is coming along for the ride including the patient it's just not serving anybody and it's tremendously it's a tremendous cause of burnout and suffering for the physicians i'll tell you um i i have a a piece that i sort of put a little bit of it into my book i didn't put the entire thing in because it was so raw and so painful in fact it's i have it as as a separate essay that is still on my list of things to to send out there but it was a story of me in the intensive care unit with a patient um, who was really, really dying. This patient was, I mean, and she was young and she was young and she had come in reasonably healthy and it was just a series of very serious physiologic uh, disturbances that clearly she was at this point now dying irreversibly. And I went in to talk to her family. I I was very, very, you know, afraid to, to bring them this terrible, devastating news. And I had this one intern on my team who was fresh out of medical training, very, very good medical student, and was the person in charge of this case. And this this young doctor, uh, who really was just a couple months into her training, became so disturbed and angry that I would even consider p- taking my foot off the gas with the conversation with again with the family about what the realities were of the situation Mm -hmm. that she walked away and slammed the door and it was this real sense of i am all alone i'm having a mutiny on my hands like my residents are thinking i'm a bad doctor i'm a weak doctor and that is a real phenomenon that I think happens even for the most seasoned attendings that you're afraid to look like you're weak or you're giving up. And I think it is something we don't talk about in the medical system. Well, it sounds like um, with what's going on, and I'm just peripherally aware of it in my practice, but I see uh, doctors in training um, mm-hmm. through Upstate Medical uh, University. And you know, the burnout is, and and you know as well as I do, the suicide rate, the addiction rate, that what's happening now, I think what you're saying is not sustainable. No, it's it's not bringing our best selves to this work. I mean, we come, most people I know who go into medicine really do care. They really have compassion. They want to be helping. They want to be serving. And you come into the system where there is this sort of military style expectation Mm. that you Uh and especially as you and there's almost the I write about this in my book that you know there's like you watch the medical students they come in and everyone kind of you know winks at each other the little medical student who's so sensitive and so moved oh yeah then watch the medical student she's going to get upset by this the fact is then what we sort of almost take pride in or expect is that as we ascend the ladder of training Mm -hmm. that we're supposed to sort of divest ourselves of these weak emotions of the, the emotions the desire to cry or faint 
in the operating room or whatever it might be that the medical student is allowed to do, but you're supposed to grow out of it. Mm-hmm. And the reality is, I want to tell you, I cry. I want to be able to mm-hmm. cry when I see sad things or scary things or sa- or you know upsetting things. And I think that the human element, I mean, I don't want to be sobbing in front of patients and families, but sure. being a human being is 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 a, an asset to being a doctor. Mm-hmm. So we're not we're not uh, we're not supporting that. I, I'll tell you one more story, which is yeah. I had I had this patient um, who it was a terribly sad situation in the intensive care unit, and I remember the um, it was an intern. She was an emergency room intern who was on the ICU team, and she started presenting the case in in rounds in the morning, and she um, was just very you could just see she was very very sad, and she started sobbing. There was something about the case that really impacted her on a personal level. I don't remember the details, but we walked out into the hallway, and I pulled her aside, and I said I said, and she and and I said, listen, I know this is really hard, and she kind of looked at me, and she. You, you, a sob came out of her, and then I watched as she suppressed it and turned away from me and said, I'm okay, I'm okay, I'm okay, and she walked mm-hmm. away. And she wouldn't engage. She she wouldn't allow herself because she was afraid. You could feel this fear that she was giving, she was making herself too vulnerable, that she was looking too weak. And I think that that is what we have got to change. So there are no provisions. I mean, I, I forgive my ignorance here, yeah. but there are no provisions for helping physicians deal with their own trauma, their secondary trauma mm-hmm. of day in and day out, seeing you know the uh, patients at the most vulnerable state. Is that is that correct? I if I had to answer one word, I'd say you're right. Absolutely no provisions. There are some hospitals and some medical schools and some systems which may be a little bit more progressive as we're starting to understand this concept of secondary trauma that will bring out. For example, my hospital just brought in uh, a psychologist, and you know, so people. Are, in fact, she, she got her hours filled up very, very quickly to sort of talk in private and confidence with patients, with 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 residents and and and, and attendings uh, about their own personal struggles. But there is nothing. It's all covert. It's still very, very sort of under the table. Thank God it's there. And again, I I think a lot of hospitals don't have anything like that. So that was something that I was very proud of in our hospital. But there isn't any kind of public forum. Some places, again, have something called Schwartz rounds. I don't know if you've heard that, where you come together to discuss a very, uh, instead of doing kind of the classic morbidity and mortality rounds where you're talking about physiology and what happened in this case, you're actually talking not, a, you're talking about the case, but you're talking about it from more of the emotional perspective. What was your experience, all of the staff involved in this case? But that doesn't exist at every hospital. Um, we're trying to get that at our hospital now, but, but, but you know, there isn't a really a public, and I talk about this again a lot in, in a lot of my writings and in my book, there isn't this sense that it's it's encouraged, it's an asset to be the kind of doctor or trainee who would reach out and say, hey, I'm struggling. I'm mm. I'm having a hard time. I'm not sure what to do. I'm not, you know, there's the, if you do that, and I'll tell you, as the ICU attending, in a lot of cases, you actually almost sometimes feel that there's a mutiny, that that, that people kind of look at each other on the team and like, oh, wow, she's, she's, she's not she's sure of herself. She's losing it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So it's really, it's, we've got so far to go with this problem. 
Hello, everyone. I wanted to tell you about a product I've been using lately for aches and pains that's really helped me, and I've been singing it from the rooftops. Some of you may already have discovered the benefits of using CBD. I have found it to be a game changer for my creaky joints. I'm a tennis player, and I have three dogs, and being active is really important to me, and we know how important it is in aging well. But at age 59, my joints can be a bit stiff, uh, especially in my knees. And this stuff has really helped so I don't have to wear a knee brace anymore, which really wasn't such a good look. I've done my research and it's very important to get the highest quality ingredients. There's a lot of junk on the market, so you have to make sure the product is tested by a third-party lab at the very least. My favorite company is called Proze, P-R-O-Z-E, and they have several products that are formulated for specific problems, including sleep and mental focus. Uh, lately, I've been using the performance gum called Yippies and the Nods, which helps me sleep and tastes very cinnamony. If you go to their website, pros.com, and enter the coupon code ZESTFUL, you're going to get 15% off. I highly recommend trying it out. I think you're really going to be surprised how effective it is, and I would love some feedback from you on how it works. Again, the website, pros, P-R-O-Z-E dot com, coupon code is zestful. Thank you. Now back to the show. Well, you're, you know, you're, it's nothing short of, uh, of a, challenging a culture that's built on power yes. and it was you know created by men it's a yes. very you know you're yes. really trying to flip this over and i suspect the ama may not be lining up to support <laughs> this i i could be wrong no i think you're i mean i look i haven't even i haven't asked the ama to yeah. support it or not but i think this is a sort of a revolutionary stance this is this is going against an entire system that has created tremendous uh grandiosity and you know establishment it's it's an anti-establishment stance um and i think it it really there is a big part of this that has to do with gender um and there is a big part of this that has to do with uh just you know challenging an existing uh system that really has benefited many people and and i'm wondering if the time is now because I think I read a statistic that there are more women now in med school than men. Is, is yeah. that accurate? Yes. And I, I do. I do. That's true. I think I, I've seen, the you know, 56 percent. I, I don't know what the final number is, but that it has actually tipped the scale in the in many places. And, and I think um, that does provide again. I'm not. I'm not in any way trying to, to bash men because there are so many wonderful ma- male doctors out there. This is obviously uh a huge generalization that isn't in any way meant to, uh, to, to yes. be, you know. But I do think that there is something about bringing in more of a collaborative, 
uh, feminine mm-hmm. spirit to this I, I work. Could, I could see, <laughs> I could hear your pause. Do I want to use this word? <laughs> right, yeah. exactly. I mean, I think it's time. I mean, I, I really do think it's time for us to reevaluate. You know, this is, look, it's one thing to talk about the business world. This is, this is dealing with the most vulnerable people. I mean, the mm-hmm. sickest, the pe- people who can't, who are so frightened and who are making this most important transition in life. And for us to have removed ourselves from the hu- human, you know, humanistic approaches to, to have really just made this into um, a regimented uh, hierarchical environment does not lend itself. And and ultimately, this is going to be all of us because I'll tell you, every doctor, even the most sophisticated, I just took care the other day of a very, very elderly, but very top uh, of his you know, game orthopedic surgeon who ran this department and ran that department at the most important hospitals and this and that. And he was dying and he was sick and he couldn't, you know, he couldn't be, even though he was sort of trying to still uh, have some sort of, you know, uh, recognition of his role and his stature, he was still just the patient. Mm -hmm. And we want people caring for this man, just like any other person in our society, uh, to, to be as attentive to his needs, his vulnerability. And we can't do that with a cold and hierarchical system. You kind of outed yourself then in, 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 in the documentary because we were able to see you saying, wow, um, I'm not really sure. And you were talking to one of the other physicians who had a different opinion. And it's on film that yes. you were saying, look, uh, we could go this way, we could go that way. And I'm not really sure what's going to happen when you take her off the ventilator. Here's my best guess. Yes. And that moment, by the way, just so you know, but that's a very good friend of mine, um, Dr. Bargava. Um, but that moment was actually a reenactment of a ah. fi- of a fight that we had had the day before. It wasn't a fight. Sh- she had uh, gotten very, very upset with me because, you know, and it's funny because she's one of the biggest advocates for this kind of change. And yet she's still, like all of us, she's still a part of the system. And so when 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 people feel, when things, when the, when the proverbial poop starts to hit the fan and people are deteriorating physiologically or family members are getting angry or the patient starts to scream and gets and suffering and having more, people panic. And when people panic, what we want to do is we want to shrink back into just having our protocols because it's so much easier. Let me bring in this catheter. Let me bring in this, let me try this new medication. And so the fact is when, 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 when people start to say, well, wait a minute, let's actually step back and reflect on this. Let's talk about this. Then, then the people who are most stressed and most busy can start to panic and say, wait a minute, just leave it the way it was and get angry. And there can conflict can arise. And I'll tell you mm-hmm. that, and that's what happened in that situation, that when conflict arises and you're already scared and you're mm-hmm. witnessing mm-hmm. suffering, this you want to talk about the secondary trauma. Well, you're in fight or flight. You're in fight or flight. And, and, and yeah, terrible exactly. decisions. Exactly. And you don't want anyone questioning or challenging and you want it just to go smoothly. And that is, and, and that is the problem. It's, that's exactly the moment when you do need to sit down and reflect and say, wait, let's regroup. Let's regroup. Let's help, help. I don't know what to do right now. Um, and, and we don't do it. We, we do the exact opposite and it's, it's not functional. So you are doing your work as a physician, but you're also doing your work 
smashing hierarchy and changing medical culture. That's those are two big jobs. Oh boy. How yeah. do you take care of yourself? Ah, uh, it's hard. Uh, you know, it's a hard it's a hard role. Uh, it, it has been a hard role for me. Um because I don't particularly want to be. I'm not one of those natural uh rabble rousers. I'm not somebody who kind of came in it for the fight. I I am afraid of conflict. I'm afraid of controversy. I'm afraid of ruffling feathers. I'm afraid of people being angry at me. I'm afraid of people getting annoyed and saying, who does she think she is? I'm afraid of people saying, who do you know, you're, you think you're coming in like this knight in shining armor. All of those are things that have been said to me and they're very, very painful. And they make me just want to shrink up and go back to my job and or, or even just retire. Mm-hmm. But the fact is, you know, that I don't, I, I feel almost driven by a motor of the, you know, witnessing this stuff and knowing that it's just not the way I would want to be treated if I were in that situation and almost desperately um, feeling this desperate need to write, to, to, to make it more just the way I would want it to be when I get to that point. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like driven. I, In fact, I in my book, I, I write, and I'm trying to remember the words exactly that I use. I say, you know, I didn't set out to change this culture that I so love, uh, but I felt like I had no choice but but to try. Mm-hmm. Wow. And every day it's, I mean, you're, I, 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 maybe this isn't right and maybe this isn't the right way to think about it, but I have this sense of you kind of going into battle mm-hmm. that um, it just must, must take very deep emotional stores to go in and do this. You're not doing well child checks, right? <laughs> I mean, you're, you know, every, you yeah. know, if you're in the ICU, things are bad. Yeah. Yeah. Do yeah. you have any practice or anything that you do to kind of get yourself in a, in a uh, state of mind that you're not constantly in fight or flight? Oh, you're so good. Man, I wish we lived closer so you could be my so you could be my therapist. Um, you know, I, I'll tell you, I've I've actually not been doing as much self-care as I need to because I actually, you know, my book uh, and the movie came out at the same time in 2017. In fact, I went to the Oscars when with you know, the movie was nominated for an Oscar and I went I went there right it was I think three days after or before my book came out, I can't remember now. And it was this mad exciting you know early 2017 exciting rush and it was not only was it all of a sudden this big um moment of you know going to speak in all these different places but it was also a moment where i started feeling more and more paranoid about how people were going to respond because as you kind of get more out in the limelight you 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 feel like your words you you feel afraid to put your words out you know they they become they feel more and more impactful yeah they're permanent they're permanent and people get, you know, people get upset uh, sometimes. And you, so a lot of my activities are so filled with this excitement and, and passion. And then with this, all this contrary feeling of fear and anxiety and so this sort of being in and back of, should I say this? What will this person say if I say this? And what would that person say if I say that? And so it's been very, exhilarating but very stressful and sometimes I just feel like like stopping there are times when I just feel like and part of it also is I'm not a great you know business person I mean I like I have a lot to say and a lot to write but then there's also 
you know, stuff that needs to be done in terms of keeping, figuring out who the contacts and the, the business piece of this, which I'm not very good at. And so there's been a lot of stresses and I find myself waking up in the middle of the night, sometimes anxious and worried. And so I, I, I need to figure out a way to, to pull all that stuff back and, uh, and, and calm myself. I mm-hmm. have been doing some somatic experiencing, which I actually find very, very wonderful. And I don't understand how it works. And my Western medicine brain keeps trying to understand it. And then I finally decided I didn't need to understand it. And I, I find that to be a very restorative practice. Um, and I try to exercise, but, but the fact is, no, I'm not doing enough uh, of the self-care that, that I would like to be. Mm, you do have a dog, though. Yes. <laughs> and that is a, a big deposit in the mental health uh, bank, yes. right? And so yes. do you you walk your puppy or? I snuggle with my puppy all the time. <laughs> <laughs> she makes, she's probably my snuggliest little, she's sitting right here next to me looking mm-hmm. very happy. Um, but yeah, she's my comfort dog. I, I I haven't made her, she's not an official comfort dog, but she, mm. she, is, she does diffuse a lot of the anxiety. Mm-hmm. It's so interesting, you know, what you're doing and, and, and you're, you're just seeing the, the film. I mean, you're doing this with such heart. And I think the idea of really using empathy is so important. And yet it is very tiring. Yeah, it is. It, you know, it's really interesting right now is um, my mother-in-law is very, very sick and approaching the end of her life right now. We're actually in town and um it is so it is so interesting when it's when it's personal you know and i mean it should always be personal in some in some Mm. frank way i mean no matter who the patient is but you just there's something about the suffering the witnessing of suffering um Mm. that is just so it makes you just want to run away and 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 solve it or do something just do something Mm -hmm. um take it away take it away (laughs) and the fact is that you know dying and serious illness there is just some innate there is some innate suffering that that is just a part of that process no matter even if you're doing quote unquote everything perfectly and you 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 know there has to be some way to sit uh, whether you're the, the the family member or the doctor or the nurse or the chaplain, to just sit with the suffering and and be present with it, and that is just not something that doctors now chaplains know how to do that, therapists know how to do that, doctors never were taught how to do that. We were taught the opposite. Mm-hmm. We were taught to just do something, mm-hmm. and um, and I think one of the big parts of our training needs to be learning how to sit with suffering and sit in the presence of it. Um, and I think that will make us into better, the, the practitioners we really need to be. Mm-hmm. It's such important work that you're doing. Um, and I, I'm just so delighted to be able to talk to you about it. If a, I'm just thinking about our listeners, what can we expect um, from our doctors? And I had an experience um, actually going through chemotherapy, and my physician was apparently very skilled, uh, well-known, and all of this, and his bedside manner was just horrific. <laughs> and just, no, this is what we're doing. And I said, no, I actually, I need a break. And he's like, no, this is the protocol. You either do it or you don't. Right. And I am 
the kind of person who says, well, I think I can find someone else who speaks more respectfully. Right. I mean, can we expect that? Or is there is there a point at which we just say, look, that's I'm just going to take what I can get from this person and then move on? Or should we expect Uh, that we can have somebody who hears us? You know, it's it's such an important question because ultimately the reason I do all of this work is to to move two different audiences. One is the healthcare providers who are my colleagues and to to remind us of how important it is to reconnect with our humanity, to bring our humanity to this work, which we have been taught to, you know, not to do. And the other audience is lay people. I mean, most, you know, both extremists and my book, Extreme Measures, really are, when people say to me, well, who's your audience? Well, the audience is everybody. Mm-hmm. It's really everybody. Uh, and, and there's different messages to be extracted from both from both of those and all of my writing from these different audiences. But the, the message for the, the, the lay community is about self-empowerment and how you get the health care that you need and the, the, the care, that, the medical care that you need and deserve, even in a system that has not yet changed to what we need it to be. And there are tricks and there are strategies and there are things that people can do. I, I write a very robust appendix in my book, Extreme Measures, that I think and I hope is, is very helpful to people in terms of really the steps and the things that you need to do in order to... Uh, be most successful in 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 being treated the way that you want to be treated. But there are there are strategies, and you're right. Finding another doctor is one of them. However, if you live in some little tiny town in Minnesota, you may not have uh, a whole lot to, of people to choose from to 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 treat you. And you you there's still strategies that you can use uh, to 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 get the, the patient centered treatment that you need to to get. And it's very important for people not to let themselves be acted upon or let themselves be widgets on a what I call the end-of-life conveyor belt, but really to step up and say, I am a very important part of this team and my needs are frankly the most important needs in the room and I don't, you know, I don't want you to think of me as an object or a, to be acted upon. To use your, your power as a consumer. Yes. I yes, see. exactly. I see. Anything else you'd like to share uh, with our audience before we say goodbye today? Well, I guess the main thing I would say, if I if I could, I think the probably the biggest lever here is to ask people to think to to number one. This is going to sound too obvious, but to really start to come to terms with their own mortality. And and the fact is, everyone knows logically that everyone's going to die. No, nobody thinks they're going <laughs> to escape death. But to really start to work with that knowledge in, in a way and to think about the making some plans uh, for their own uh, preferences around times of life where they may uh, not be able to to be as independent and what are they going to want? What is going to be important to them about what are the qualities that are going to be essential to maintain in their lives? And I would say it's really about advanced care planning. It's about talking with your family. It's about maybe using the the card game Go Wish or some other type of device to start having that kind of conversation and bringing that into your family so that there is less of a brittleness uh, when when the time comes, and it will come, um, to to really having honest and and forthright discussions about how to serve your needs. Mm-hmm. 
That's excellent advice. And where can people find you and your book? Well, uh, please go to my website, jessicazitter.com, and you can certainly see uh, my book, Extreme Measures, is on there and a description of what it's about. I think it's a, a very, very helpful guide for people uh, as they as they start to think about these issues, both uh, in terms of their own lives and their advanced care planning, and also in terms of how to negotiate through the hospital environment, which is very tricky and opaque. Um, uh, certainly think that I have a lot of big list of resources on my website. I have, uh, people should sign up for my newsletter because I actually have uh, several more movies and podcasts on the docket. In fact, we have a movie that's just getting ready to come out, which is about family caregiver burden, which is a, a topic we haven't been talking enough about in, in our society, about what is it like, again, even when you're doing everything quote unquote right, to have someone die in at home and, and how, how beautiful an experience that can be for those who want it and also how important it is to prepare for it and and how much we as a society need to think about uh, about enhancing the support of those people caring for uh, their loved ones at home mm-hmm. um, so that's something I'd love to share with people um, in the next month or so when we we're hoping to, to get that out very soon but uh, sign up for my newsletter and you'll see all of these articles and and other things that are coming out and Extremis is uh, now on Netflix, and yes. I would recommend that highly. Dr. Jessica Zitter, thank you so much for oh. educating us and talking with us about, it's just such a profoundly important topic. I really appreciate your time. Oh, such a pleasure to speak with you. Thanks for all your wonderful questions. Hey everyone, I wanted to tell you about a powerful new tool that supports your mental and emotional health in what are extremely trying times. And you may remember that I've been a psychotherapist for 30 years, and I'm always a little suspicious of products that claim to help us feel less anxious, depressed, or worried. But then I was introduced to a new kind of app called Cope Notes, and I have become a big fan. Cope Notes was developed by a guy who spent a lot of his life trying to figure out what might help support him through his own weekly psychotherapy sessions. Cope Notes is an app that gives you random texts through the day to break through some of the negative messages that might be repeating in your head. It's well-researched and has been a adopted by many mental health facilities. I highly recommend it. I think we can all use a little support right now. So check out copenotes.com forward slash zestful. I will receive a small portion of those proceeds. Um, And I'd love to hear your feedback about how it works for you. Thank you so much for joining us on Zestful Aging. If you like the podcast, please share it with some of your friends. I love to hear from my listeners. Send me an email at NicoleChristina.com. It's no secret that everyone's feeling pretty restless and unsettled right now. Our lives are upside down and the future is feeling pretty uncertain. But if you're anything like me, organizing my stuff can help me feel a little calmer. It's something I can do to help me feel a little more in control and in charge of my own life. 
If you think decluttering could help you feel better and you could use a little assistance with that, check out the online course I've developed with professional organizer and designer Carrie Luteran. It's called Too Much Stuff. And too much stuff is different from other courses or articles or guidance you may have used. Uh, we give you clear steps to deal with the clutter and the tools to help you face the overwhelming feelings and the emotions that come up when we're going through our clutter. And a lot of those emotions are just feeling anxious or guilty or just basically flooded with a lot of different confusing feelings. The course is really practical. It's realistic. The lessons are short and punchy, and they're really manageable. We're not trying to set you up for some long, exploratory, you know, super in-depth, uh, burdensome experience. We want something really helpful for you right now. We all need help with our anxiety. So, being surrounded by more calm and less chaos can really help. So now's a good time to clear out the clutter so we can focus on what's really important in our lives. So find out more at zestfulaging.com. You'll see more about this under the web courses tab. If you have any questions, just shoot me an email at zestfulaging at gmail.com. Thanks so much. And stay tuned next week for another interview with a fascinating and inspiring guest.